0: Space. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Yeah, there's no palms, and it would be uh, it would be remiss for me if we did not turn to a Palm Sunday passage. So, please turn turn to Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Palm Sunday, of course, uh, is the day that uh, the church has set aside for the commemoration of that account in Jesus' life that's referred to as the Triumphal Entry, Uh, one of the most well-known episodes in Christ's life. Uh, In fact, it's one of, of... a handful of episodes in in the life of Christ that's mentioned in all four Gospels. So that in and of itself raises it to a uh, uh, an importance um, uh, amongst the uh, the apostle or the gospel writers uh, of this episode within the life of Christ. And you know, due to the familiarity of that particular passage, uh, we can actually kind of overlook the richness of its truth. We can kind of take a lot of of the story itself for granted uh, just because we know it so well miss the truth, much of the truth that that God has in it for us, so our goal today is to mine the riches of some of the truth that is in this passage for us, and especially in preparation for the week that Nate just reminded us that we're entering into, uh, the Passion Week, of course, Uh, the observance of the Lord's giving of his life for the sin of the world on Good Friday, and of course, uh, commemorating with the culmination, the, the zenith of the week on next Sunday, uh, the resurrection of our Lord from the grave. So, to help us remember some of what we're going to learn today, as the purpose for the handout sheet, uh, we're going to look at six particular words, each of them beginning with the letter C. All, again, just for the purpose of helping us to remember uh, what we're going to learn today. And I think what they do is they collectively summarize the truth that we're going to be uncovering this morning. And so for the first truth that we're going to discover in this passage is that Jesus was committed. Jesus was committed. And we glean this from verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. Verse 28 says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So at this time in his ministry, Jesus uh, had been Serving upwards of three years. Uh, he's traveled throughout Israel, preaching to every town that he comes to. Um, he's, and healing in every location that he's been. He's been throughout all of Israel. And he's left his home base, which was in Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. And he's making his way down towards Jerusalem. And the immediate context of what we see here in chapter 19 of Luke is that he was just in Jericho, in the town of Jericho, and in that place he actually healed two blind beggars that were calling out to him as he was in the city, and he graciously healed them. And then the main story that comes out of Jericho is, of course, the one where he meets Zacchaeus, and as he's with Zacchaeus having dinner in his home, Zacchaeus comes to faith, and he is saved, and his life is transformed by the life and presence of Christ. So that's the context that we are in as we're looking at Luke 19. But just prior to his arrival in Jericho, Jesus specifically and expi- explicitly tells the, this, the disciples why it is that they're going to Jerusalem. Now, they no doubt thought that it was for the purpose of celebrating the Passover, because that's exactly the time of year that they're going right now. It's during, it's on its way to the Passover. But Jesus would reveal to them the real purpose, why they are going there. It's much more than just the observance of Passover. And for that, we can look just one chapter back in Luke 18. Turn with me, please, to verses 31 through 33 of Luke 18. Starting in verse 31, Jesus it says, And taking the twelve, he, Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. You know the scriptures are very faithful to give us many of the reasons why it was that the son of God became the incarnate son of man. Why God condescended by leaving the heavenly realm and became flesh and blood like us, yet a man without sin. And some of those reasons are, and these are all familiar to you, as we see in John 12, it says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So he came to bring light to a dark and fallen world. It tells us in John 18, as he's standing before Pilate, he says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus, one of his purposes was to bear witness to the truth. 1 John 3.8 tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And even in Mark 2.17, the Lord himself says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These are all multiple purposes that are given to us in Scripture of why the Lord Jesus became the incarnate Son of God to dwell on us on this earth. But there are a few, excuse me, but of all the reasons, the crowning reason of all was that he came to give his life to redeem his people. And we find that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that his destiny on this earth was the cross. He was born to be the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And that would only be possible by giving his life as a literal sacrifice. And as a result, he was fully committed to his calling and would see it through to its end. Notice in verse 28 of of Luke chapter 19, it says, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So knowing what's awaiting for him in Jerusalem, the cross, he led the way without any hesitation at all. He's being like a good captain in battle, leading the charge so that he may take the field with his troops that he's leading. He was committed to fulfilling the plan of the redemption that he agreed to do in the Council of the Trinity before the foundation of the world. This was a plan that was set up before there existed anything. They had predetermined that Christ would go to the cross for his people. As Hebrews 12 tells us, it was for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Joy was God's glory and the redemption of his people. It was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and the shame that came with it. That is what Jesus has in mind, and that is how he is firmly committed to fulfilling that purpose. And so by way of application, In light of that incredible truth, Matthew Henry asks this soul-stirring question. He asks, since Jesus was so willing to pay the ultimate price for us, shall we draw back from any service that we are capable of doing for him? In other words, given that he gave himself fully for us, is there anything that we wouldn't be willing to do for our Savior? That's an important question that each of us need to ask ourselves and to meditate upon. So the first truth that we glean from this passage is that Jesus was committed. The next truth that we discover is that Jesus was in full control. Jesus was in full control. And we see that in verses 29 through 34. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, At the mount that is called olivet he sent two of the disciples saying go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you untying it you shall say this the lord has need of it so those who were sent away So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. You know, for years, critics and skeptics have disparaged Jesus by saying that he was simply a common man, and like many others that came before him, he sought to make a name for himself at that time in Israel by propping himself and claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. And like many of those other false messiahs that came prior to him, after gaining a following, circumstances beyond his control turned on him, and that's what eventually led to his downfall. That's kind of the scenario that they, put in there, that they have put out there about Jesus. That's how many people view Jesus and the eventual crucifixion. They actually think that he was a guy who worked the system for a while, but then eventually he got destroyed by the system itself. But we know that God's word is polar opposite of this. Jesus was not a victim of circumstance, and he wasn't a victim of bad luck. Instead, the scriptures affirm that Jesus was in full control of every aspect of his life. And no passage is more clear in that affirmation than the one we just read. The triumphal entry did not just happen spontaneously and on a whim. As we read in the text, Jesus orchestrated this entire event. It was his idea that this came to pass. Notice, he commanded his two disciples to go into the village. He told them exactly what they were to do when they got there. He predicted exactly what they would find in terms of the response. He instructed them exactly what they should say when they faced that situation. And as a result, everything came to pass exactly as Jesus had said it would happen. This was no string of good luck or an example of the power of positive thinking. It was clear evidence that Jesus is God incarnate. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Alpha and the Omega, just as the scriptures declare him to be. He alone knows the end from the beginning, and he's the one who ordains the means by which his perfect will shall fully come to pass. It's Jesus, not the clueless disciples, and not the fickle crowd who determined that this event would actually take place. Jesus knew that the prophecy of Zechariah needed to be fulfilled, and so he initiated the plan that would actually bring that to pass. And just to bring back to your remembrance what Zechariah 9.9 says, it reads this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and so being committed to the promise that He made on the Sermon on the Mount, when you remember when He says that not one jot or tittle from the law will pass away unless until everything is accomplished, Jesus fully orchestrated this event that God would be true to His word. And so, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, what it means for us is this. Aside from giving us another reason to love and submit fully to Jesus, it's a reminder that your life is not a series of unfortunate events. Your life is not a life being tossed to and fro by a ruthless, blind fate. And it's not a life that is without genuine meaning and purpose. Your life is in the hands of the very one who gave you life, who sustains your life, and who is in control of every aspect of your life and every life in all of creation. And if Jesus is in full control of all that is, seen and unseen, then we can rest knowing that we are in the best hands possible and that no circumstance is beyond his reach. This is absolutely true when incredibly massive tornadoes rip through and destroy whole towns in the South. This is absolutely true when crazed people walk into Christian schools and gun down innocent children. This was absolutely true when the greatest injustice happened, when sinful man crucified the perfectly only righteous man that ever walked this earth. He was in charge in all of that. And being control, in, in control, he alone can bring beauty out of those ashes. He is the one that gives purpose and meaning to every event that happens in all of of history. Even those that we look at and deem as completely horrific, he alone can make good out of that horrific moment. Okay. So far from our passage, we've affirmed that Jesus was committed to his goal of saving us by way of the cross, and we've seen that Jesus was in full control of what of all that was going on in the drama of redemption. Now, we're going to uncover the next truth, and that is that the crowd was convinced. We see that in verses 36. And 30 uh, through 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory. In the highest. So, as I mentioned before, the time of year that Jesus made his way to Jerusalem was during the Feast of Passover. It was the celebration, of course, of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And we, of course, know that Passover was one of the three most important feasts on the Jewish calendar feasts that every able bodied Jew living within 15 miles of Jerusalem was expected to attend yearly. Does anyone know the other two feasts? David. Booth. Feast of Booths. And, and, and the Feast of Weeks. Now, normally, Jesus, or excuse me, normally Jerusalem would have had a population of about 250,000. But when Passover was in full swing, there were upwards of 2.5 million Jews within Jerusalem and its outer areas and its suburbs, if you will. In other words, the city was swelling with pilgrims and the sounds and the sights and the smells and the commotion of what 2.5 million people looks like in a small concentrated area. And also because Passover celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egypt, it was then that Jewish hopes ran high for freedom from Rome and the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. The people were always hopeful that it would be during the time, this time of year that God would send their deliverer, their Messiah, to once and for all remove the Roman boot from the neck of the Jews and restore the glory to Israel once again. And it's into this context that Jesus initiates and executes his triumphal entry. And when he does, the crowd receives him as the king that they've been waiting for. And we see this in, in what we just read. Notice that they were spreading their cloaks on the road as he was riding down on the donkey. What that was is that that was an act of homage before royalty. That's what they would do in that period of time. They would lay down their garments before the reigning king as he went by in the procession before all the people. It's almost akin to what we see today as a royal red carpet. for a king or a queen being laid out before them. That's what the people were doing with their garments. We know from the other Gospels that they were also laying down palm branches, which again was another example of what this means of paying homage to this king. And those symbols, uh, those palm branches were symbols of victory and triumph and peace. And then also in what they were saying, they were reciting the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 through 118. These were the psalms that the Jews sang every year at Passover. They were psalms of praise to Yahweh, especially sung during Passover because they recounted God's redemption of his people. Now, because Passover was such a happy and festive celebration, it was common for pilgrims to be received by crowds with generosity and hospitality and all shouts of great joy. I mean, you have people coming in from all over the place And there was just a a sense within the spirit of the community there that everyone coming in was family and they would welcome each other with shouts of joy. But it's clear that something more than that is going on here with Jesus. This isn't just another pilgrim coming into town and they're just welcoming him. From the moment that he began his ministry in Galilee, going from town to town, teaching with authority, healing the sick, casting out demons, his notoriety grew. People came from all over to hear and see and be touched by this man, who Nicodemus rightly characterized as a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. They saw clearly that there was something special about this man, Jesus. And as more and more was learned about him and what he was doing, the crowds increasingly began to believe that he was the Messiah they were waiting for. So much so that they began to refer to him with the Messianic title, Son of David. And if you think about your, your remembrance of, of the gospel accounts, we see this happening at various venues throughout his ministry over the three-year buildup leading to this moment. They referred to him as the Son of David, calling out to him with those Messianic terms. But of all the events that took place during his time, the crowning event, which confirmed their speculation about Jesus, Was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I invite you to turn to John chapter 12. Keep your finger in Luke 19 for a moment, but turn with me to John 12, starting in verse 9. Starting in verse 9 of John 12, it says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, he was in Bethany at Lazarus' house at the time, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Let's skip down to verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And then again down to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So as a result of all that they had heard about Jesus and all that they had seen, especially this crowning moment of him raising Lazarus from the dead, the people were certain that their suspicions were right about this man. The crowd was fully convinced that Jesus was the Messiah they were waiting for. And it's because of this conviction that they paid homage to him as their king, When he rode into Jerusalem, this is the reason why they so willingly laid down their garments in the way they did. Why they so willingly and openly, vocally proclaimed him to be their king, all under the gaze of their Roman captors. Now think about that context. They are surrounded by the Romans who are trying to keep peace within Israel at this time that is swelling with 2.5 million Jews. For the Romans, they see this as a possible huge threat of an uprising against Rome. So that tension is there. And for these Roman captors to be there and the Jews to be doing this before them, they must have been absolutely convinced that Jesus was Messiah because they had no fear of reprisals from Rome at this moment. They didn't care because they were convinced that their Messiah would lead them to victory over them. (coughs) So what's our application then? At this point in the narrative, it's clear that the crowds were absolutely convinced that Jesus was Messiah. The question, then, that we need to ask ourselves is this. Am I genuinely and fully convinced that Jesus is the Messiah? Is he truly my Lord and my Savior? Or are they just words that I unthinkingly allow to flow out of my mouth? Do I truly believe that Jesus is Messiah? Or do I just simply say that because of the Christian community that I happen to be involved in? Those are good questions to ask ourselves. The strong conviction of the crowd in Jerusalem prompted them to worship him publicly and to praise him openly for all to hear. So for those of us that are sure that Jesus is our Savior, we might ask these questions. Is that response reflective of my life? Have I laid down my garments, an example of my all that I own, every part of me? Have I laid down my garments before him in full submission to his lordship over my life? Do I joyfully declare him to be the savior, to be my lord? Do I declare my love for him for everyone to hear? Or am I ashamed to be associated with him and do what I can to hide from those around me? Now, I realize that in a few days, the hot conviction of this crowd is going to grow very cold, and they will turn on Jesus. And so in terms of the crowd being some kind of great example of unwavering faith for us to follow, they, of course, absolutely are not. But in this moment, their conviction about Jesus and their God-glorifying response to that conviction is clearly noteworthy. It's something that we should not escape our gaze, and it's something that we should meditate upon and use for our own edification as we examine the genuineness and quality and maturity of our own faith. Okay, so having affirmed so far that Jesus was committed, that he was in control, and that the crowd was fully convinced, we will now see that regardless of how great the opposition is, the truth about Jesus will always be communicated. The truth about Jesus will always be communicated. We receive this instruction in verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There's nothing that the powers of darkness want more than to squash the light of the truth. One reason, of course, is because the light of truth uncovers the darkness and shows it for the evil and the ugliness that it is. Darkness hates being exposed. But the other reason that darkness hates the light of truth, especially as it's found in the scriptures, is because it reveals the Messiah, and the message of the gospel. Ever since the fall, Satan has worked both to bury and corrupt the truth about the Messiah and to thwart his coming, the very one who is destined to crush the head of Satan and who alone would save his chosen people from Satan's tyrannical rule. Clearly, Satan has an interest in destroying the light. Because the light has come to destroy him. And knowing that Messiah would come from Israel. God's chosen people. Satan as we see in the scriptures. On numerous occasions. Tried to destroy the Jews. Or to destroy their ability to produce the Messiah. Just think. Pharaoh ordered the midwives. To drown every Jewish male that was born. For the purpose of destroying the Jewish people. Haman plotted by using government decree to execute all of the Jews. He wanted to eradicate the entire race of the Jewish people by government decree. And Herod, if you think of that, ordering the slaying of all boys two years and under in Bethlehem after getting word that the Savior was born in Bethlehem. But notice, in every instance, it was Satan who was thwarted, and it was God's plan and purposes that prevailed. This is because the light of truth is greater and more powerful than the darkness of evil and falsehood. As the Gospel of John proclaims in chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and what? The darkness has not overcome it. It has not overcome it, and it will never overcome it. And that's why in this situation when the Pharisees, who are the enemies of Christ, tell Jesus to tell his disciples to stop proclaiming this truth about him being the Messiah because they hated that message, Jesus basically said to them, I can't and I won't because even if I tried, if they remained silent, then nature itself would communicate the truth about me. For what they are saying must be proclaimed. In other words, the truth about Jesus will not be hidden, and it will not be thwarted. No matter what is done to stop it, the testimony about Jesus will always prevail. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the entire earth. Nothing will stop it. There will always be a witness for Christ in the gospel, no matter how dark our times get. And we see that, again, having played out throughout all of history. Think of the early church. It was brutally attacked by Rome and by unbelieving Jews, where they put them to death. They sent them to the Colosseum, to the animals, to be torn apart for their faith because they would not recant. During the Dark Ages, the gospel and God's word were purposefully kept out of the hands of the people by the corrupt Roman Catholic Church. They did not let them have God's word that they might be saved. And then just think even in our recent times, in the former, in in the USSR, when when the Soviet Union was still alive. And then now, today, in countries like China and North Korea and Iran, it's a crime, often punishable by death, to proclaim Christ or to have his word. So that oppression has always been there. It will continue to be there. We even see that, that trend starting to rise in this country. But think about it. Despite all of the darkness and oppression, the truth about Jesus has always prevailed. He continues to have his vocal remnant in every age. Just think about the early church, going back to that. What was it that caused the church to grow? It says the blood of the martyrs, the fact that they stood firm for the faith. God used that as a testimony, and he grew the church from that. What happened during the dark ages? He raises men like Luther and Calvin and all of the other reformers to bring the light of the gospel out of the darkness. And he's doing that now in these countries that supposedly have uh, uh, put a shield against the Christian doctrine. We know that the underground church is growing in all of these places. There is no place that man will be able to stop God from proclaiming his truth about Christ. And in this passage, Jesus says, that if if the crowds were to be silent, then the very stones would be would cry out. Well, you know what? We are those stones, living stones, according to First Peter chapter two, who have come to the living stone, the cornerstone, Christ Jesus Himself, who is rejected by men, but has simultaneously who is simultaneously chosen and precious in the sight of God. And by virtue of being labeled by God as living stones, we are, according to, to Peter, in verse 9 of his first letter, chapter 2, it says, we are a chosen race, a people for his possession. For what purpose? Listen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he has us here, that we can proclaim the beauty and the glory of Christ to this unbelieving world. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is building his church and that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. How does all this then apply in our lives? It stands, we know that the church, because it will not, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As long as the church remains, there will always be a witness for Jesus. Therefore, we can rest knowing that the truth about Jesus will always be communicated. Nothing will silence and put out that light. So moving on, we have a fifth truth that we can draw out of this passage. And the fifth truth is this. Those who reject Christ will be condemned. We glean this from verses 41 through 44 of Luke 19. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It's clear that in this passage, Jesus has in mind the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's unmistakable. In his omniscience as the God-man and with an incredible economy of words, Jesus predicts exactly what is going to happen to the city and its people in 40 years. And the reason for the judgment is because of the rejection of him as Messiah. Now that's a strange thing for me to say, isn't it? Given the fact that we just affirmed a few minutes ago that the crowd was absolutely convinced that he was the Messiah. But you see, the reality was the conviction that the crowd had was very short lived. And as long as Jesus played the role that they wanted, that of a seeming Jewish king who came to overthrow Rome and destroy and restore Israel's glory, then their conviction held firm. And by riding into Jerusalem in the way that he did, they believed that he was on his way to accomplishing that very goal. Even though he was on a donkey, and not on a white steed like a normal king would come in riding in triumph after victory. But still, they they took it. That's fine. You can come in on on a donkey. But when it was made clear that he was not there to overthrow Rome, but rather to overthrow sin and death and the devil by giving himself on the cross as the sacrificial lamb of God, well, then they wanted nothing to do with him. And they rejected him outright. They did not know that his coming in this way was the very thing that would make for peace that Jesus just mentioned here. Not the peace that they desired, this freedom from Rome. That's what they thought is where real, real, where real peace was going to come from. No, the peace that with God that they desperately needed that comes only from the forgiveness of their sins. They didn't see this as the time of their visitation from God. And so they rejected him. But in doing so, they sealed for themselves the fate of condemnation that was due. And it would come in the form of the destruction of their great city and the destruction of their great temple, which, of course, was symbolic of a religious system gone bad and would ultimately culminate in the destruction of their own lives. Millions were slaughtered in Jerusalem when Rome it down. Jesus confirms this, too, that all of this, that all, that, excuse me, Jesus confirmed the condemnation that would come to all who rejected him as Messiah when he told the parable of the minas just prior to his triumphal entry. We see that again in Luke, in, in the Gospel of Luke. So turn to Luke 19, starting in verse 11. This is a parable that Jesus tells just prior to, his coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. And it's very fitting because it, it gives us an insight in terms of this whole idea of unbelief being condemned. Look at Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a, ter- a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So there it is again, another confirmation from scripture that the spirit of the times was these people were expecting God, King God's kingdom to come, his Messiah to come. And it says, he said, therefore, a nobleman, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. A mina is about three months worth. Of labor for a a common laborer. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he had returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, so at this point in the story, the nobleman goes through and he he recounts how the, the results of these stewards that he's given money to. He, he wants to see how they did. And he commends two of them because they did really well. They, they got a nice profit back from what they invested. And then there was one that did nothing with what he was given, and he was severely rebuked. That's not part of what we're going to look at here, but what's interesting is the very tail end of things. After reviewing the performance of his servants, the nobleman has these stark words to say about those citizens who, if you remember, it said, hated him and did not want to rule over them. Look at verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Those are extremely chilling words to hear Jesus say, Jesus meek and mild, Jesus who loves everyone, yet for him to utter a parable that has these words talking about his enemies. So how do we apply this? What we get from all of this is the reminder that there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. He didn't provide us with an option to take him or leave him without any consequence. There's no live and let live when it comes to a decision about Jesus. Either we receive him as king and enjoy the benefits of forgiveness and fellowship with him, or we reject him and receive the condemnation that will befall Jesus, Jesus' enemies. Now, to be sure, It needs to be made clear because the unbelieving world will disparage this. Jesus is no despot. He's not a sadist. The scriptures are clear and it tells us that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we see this in the passage itself because what does it say when he looks at Jerusalem? It says that he weeps before Jerusalem because he knows what's coming. He's weeping before their unbelief. The thing is, with God, and this is true in every aspect, his justice has to prevail. Unbelief has to be judged somewhere. And if left in your unbelief, then all that is left is judgment, is condemnation. He's provided the way out. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He's given us a way. The problem with man is that man rejects that one way that God has provided. And as a result, there is no recourse in God's justice but to condemn everyone who is found to be dead in their sins. We move to our last, our sixth truth that we glean from this passage today. The sixth C on your little sheet, and that is that Jesus is coming again. In verse 44, Jesus rebukes Israel because they did not know the time of their visitation. Having supposedly been waiting for Messiah to come all these years, he then chastises them for missing it completely when he finally shows up. That rebuke, them is something that we should take to heart regarding Jesus' return. The triumphal entry was clearly a, a pivotal moment in Christ's life, and one that had to come to pass to fill the prophetic word. But it was not only an event for that historic moment. It's also a preview, a shadow, if you will, of what will happen when Jesus returns. This time that we just read about this morning, Jesus came humble, on a donkey's colt, as the Prince of Peace, as the Lamb of God. When he returns again, he's going to arrive in glory as a conquering king, on a white horse, with the armies of heaven dressed in white linen following him, as it tells us in Revelation 19. And he's he's going to come destroying his enemies and bringing everlasting joy to his people. So, in teaching about this, then Jesus instructs us to be on the lookout for that day. Remember what he says in Matthew 24? He tells the disciples, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Watch therefore, for you know no, you know neither the day nor the hour. And Paul picks up on that theme in first. In first Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this, For you yourselves are fully aware that the Lord will come, how? Like a thief in the night. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So, as we wait, how are we to conduct ourselves? Second Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, for the fact that the Lord is coming, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And in 1 John chapter 3, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That should be our motivation. The way we apply this truth then in our lives is that in light of all this, don't be caught by surprise at the Lord's return. Cultivate a life that is more and more devoted to loving and serving our Lord and less and less enamored with the things of this corrupted worldly system. For by doing so, you will be ready for his coming, either at his actual coming to this earth or at the day that he takes us home in death and you'll have no reason to shrink back in shame or in fear at his appearing that's exactly how he should find us waiting and excited and ready for his return at any moment so there are the six truths gleaned from the triumphal entry jesus was firmly committed to going to the cross on our behalf. And also, we take from that he's firmly committed to finishing the work that he has begun in each one of us, which is a great hope. Jesus was in full control of everything. That means regardless of what we face in in life, we have nothing to fear. The crowd was absolutely convinced that Jesus was Messiah, and we should be too. The truth about Jesus will always be communicated. So while we live, let us do our part to be part of that heavenly chorus. All unbelievers will be condemned. So we need to pray for the lost and we need to proclaim the truth that will save them. That they will be spared that end. And lastly, Jesus will assuredly come again. So we need to be watchful and continually asking the Lord to work in us for our purification. So my prayer is that God would be glorified in the proclamation of this truth and that you each would be encouraged in your walk as you submit yourselves to the Savior and as you prepare to worship him this week, as we, again, as we commemorate his giving of himself on our behalf on Calvary's cross on Friday and then rising from the grave on Sunday morning in victory, knowing that everyone who is in him we'll have that same victory when this life is done. Father, we thank you for your truth and how what you have given us, Lord, is a balm to our soul and it gives us real strength to walk both in lean times and in prosperous times, Lord. We trust you. We know that everything is in your hands, that you are working all things for good for those who love you and those who are called according to your purpose. And in the end, Lord, you will be fully glorified in everything that you do. We praise you and ask that you please apply this truth to our lives for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm